Judges chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtal, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. There was no king. And again, we saw this previously. The people were pretty much just doing whatever they felt like, right? There was a general sense of anarchy in the land. So it was Portland, pretty much. It was, um, <clears throat> last week we saw that this Levite, he's homeless, a freelancer. So again, Portland, right? Um, I guess it's kind of Seattle too. But so he's wandering around looking for a free place to live looking for free food. <clears throat> and um, it says in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan were seeking for in itself an inheritance to dwell in. Now I want to note as we get into the text here this morning, it says that the tribe of Dan was seeking for itself. An inheritance. I point that out because that's exactly what was happening. Remember earlier in the book of Joshua, the Lord had divided up the promised land, right? He had divided up Canaan when he, when he, when he gave it to them. And he, he gave each tribe their own territory. Each tribe got their own little allotment. But you may remember when each tribe got their portion of the promised land, it wasn't just they got to, to stroll on in and pitch their tents, right? They had to go in and there was work to be done. There were battles to be fought. There, were, there was stuff that had to happen. They had to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And the people of Dan had been given an allotment, but they had failed to conquer that region. They had failed to drive out the people. They had failed to settle the portion of land that the Lord had given them. And so at this point, they're sort of wandering around looking for somewhere that they can claim as their own. And so they sent out spies to look for available land. <clears throat> and so these five guys, they head out, and we don't know if there was only one group or if they sent out different groups in different directions, but this is the one group that we're looking at here. In verse three, when they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, what brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? So these five guys, right, they take up residence as they're spying out the land. They, <clears throat> they're spending the night at Micah's house. And while they're there, they hear Micah's priest talking. And I don't think 
if you just read the text, it says they recognized the voice of the Levite. It seems like it wasn't like they recognized his voice and that they knew him as much as they recognized the accent, right? They recognized that he wasn't from that area, that he was probably from, <clears throat> from the southern portion of the country, from, from Judah. You remember the text already told us that he was from Bethlehem. And um, it isn't hard for us as people from the Pacific Northwest, it isn't hard for us to recognize somebody with a Southern accent, right? It's pretty obvious. And, and every one of us who's not from the South, every time we try to imitate that Southern accent, we all use the exact same hee-haw, hillbilly, kind of redneck Riviera accent, right? Uh, if and y'all hungry, we are, you know, kind of this, this twangy little thing. You know, we're making a, a mess of biscuits and gravy after church if y'all want to eat. We actually are, by the way, if you want to hang out after church. We're, we are having biscuits and gravy, but amen. Um, but, you know, the South has a very distinctive accent. Or if you're from New York or New Jersey or Minnesota, right, it's a very distinctive accent. It's the exact same thing here. This, this guy from another region of the country, from another tribe, had a very distinctive accent and they were able to recognize where he was from. And so they say to this Levite, you know, what are you doing here? What, what business do you have at Micah's house? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me and I have become his priest. And so the Levite he recounts the story of how he got hired by the family of Micah. And basically the priest is saying this. He said, look, I'm only here because this is the best offer I could get. I'm here because I was homeless wandering around and Micah paid me to be here. And they said to him, verse five, inquire of God, please that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. Now, think through the absurdity of this with me. These guys, these five spies, they're basically on a sinful mission, right? They didn't want to do what the Lord had commanded because it was too hard. Right, we saw in Judges chapter one that as, as Dan initially tried to move into the region that the Lord had gave him, the Ammonites pushed back and drove them out. And so they, they gave up and ended up living in the hill country. It ended up that, that, that taking the land that the Lord had allotted them, it was just too hard. So we find they were doing what they wanted to do rather than what the Lord commanded them. They were taking for themselves some land that appeared to be easy pickings. And so they asked this rebellious, renegade priest who was ministering in the shrine of this little idol, if he'll ask the Lord if their mission's gonna be successful. You can see the ridiculousness of that, right? I was reading recently about these, um, these tribes of, not tribes, these groups of soldiers in Europe in the 1400s. 
and they got discharged from the military. And so they are basically unemployed soldiers. So they, they, they formed these little bands of, uh, like these little roaming gangs. And they would go up to towns and to villages and they would say, look, if you don't pay us such and such amount of money, we're gonna come in and we're gonna burn your cities. We're gonna rape your women. We're gonna steal all your stuff and we're gonna kill you. And they would enter into these formal negotiations with the town leaders. And if the town could pay, you know, they would let them go. <clears throat> and these, these little bandito groups, they would go to monasteries and they would do the same thing. They would make the same demands. They would say, listen, if you don't pay us, we're going to burn down your monastery. But they also demanded that the priests write them letters forgiving them of their sins. It's like, why? You're out here raping and pillaging and murdering. What do you care if the priest writes you this letter or not? And that's kind of the, kind of the same thing I feel like going on here in Judges. It's like they're living in sin. They're dealing with this renegade priest who's officiating services to this idol. What do they care if God's blessing their, their little trip or not? And the priest said to them, verse six, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. The priest says, yeah, everything's gonna work out fine. Go ahead, head out. And I don't know if he was just trying to get rid of them, if he, if he inquired of the idol. <clears throat> I don't know what's going on here. But this is a picture of how far this culture had fallen. These rebellious people asking this rebellious priest for instruction, for direction from the righteous God. Now, generally speaking, it doesn't work that way. Right? That's not how you hear from God. You know, running in sin, talking to false teachers. That's not the ideal way to, to receive instruction from the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtal, their brothers said to him, what do you report? And they said, arise and let us go against them. For we have seen the land and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. And as soon as you go, <clears throat> you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So the spies, they find this Sidonian settlement and it's a city called Laish. And apparently it was sort of an isolated city. It wasn't well protected, indicating that there weren't a lot of outside threats. 
the people weren't worried about being invaded. And it tells us that they were pretty well established. They're pretty well set up. They had great herds, great farmlands. They were a wealthy people. And so the spies, they go back and report to their leaders. Check it out. We found this land and it's rich. And the people are unsuspecting. And God has given it to us. Uh, well, no, he hadn't, right? He had very specifically given them a different place, a different piece of land. So verse 11, so the 600 men of Dan, of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtal and went up and camped in Kirjath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, the place was called Mahanadan. To this day, behold, it is west of Kirjath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So it's interesting that they're able to put together an army for this mission, but not for the mission that the Lord had called them to, right? This, this failure on the part of the people of Dan, it wasn't a manpower issue, it was a willpower issue, right? It wasn't an issue of occupying the land. It was an issue of obedience to the Lord. And, and I want you to see that. When Dan refused to fight for the land earlier, they weren't refusing to fight because they were a bunch of beatnik pacifists. They didn't want to fight because they were deeply committed to ease. Right? They wanted to take the easy path. They wanted to walk down the path of least resistance. And it's pretty easy to condemn them for that, except we're kind of all like that, aren't we? We all look for the path of least resistance. We all look for the, for the easiest way, the way that's the least amount of risk. But here's the thing. Much of the time, the Lord's way isn't the easy way. The Lord's path isn't the safe path. It isn't the path of least resistance. I'm reminded of David, Psalm 23. He says in verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You might well find yourself as you're serving the Lord in the valley of the shadow of death. You can find yourself as you're serving the Lord in some sketchy spots and some sketchy situations. And I've said this a million times. But the church today, the Western church today, we are in this crazy, weird bubble where we are not facing persecution like the rest of the church, the rest of the world does and like the church throughout history has, right? This little bubble that we're living in is historically not the norm, right? The norm is Christians being fed to lions, being put in, in labor camps, being thrown in prison, 
right? That's the historical norm for the church. David here, when he writes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I mean, he wasn't exaggerating, right? For 20 years, he'd been fleeing as King Saul was chasing him, trying to put him to death. And he says, look, I, I might be here. I might be in the valley of the shadow of death. Times might be tough. I might be in danger. And he's not denying that there's evil forces moving against him. But what does he say? I'm not going to fear them. I'm not going to fear the forces of darkness. Paul tells Timothy, you have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. David says, I'm not going to fear the evil one. Why? Because the Lord is with him. The Lord was comforting him. The Lord was protecting him. And I've shared this before. But as we were talking about Belize this morning, I was kind of reminded of it. You know, we used to um, put together these Christmas baskets every year. And we do like between 30 and 60 of these little, little Christmas baskets. It was basically a, a Christmas dinner kit for people who couldn't afford Christmas dinner. And we would load them up in church and it was kind of a big fun thing. We'd go on these big shopping trips. But when we got ready to deliver them, a lot of the, a lot of the times it was just me and a lot of the young ladies from church that would go deliver them and just a couple guys because a lot of the guys in the neighborhood around our church, they couldn't leave, they couldn't go into the other neighborhoods that we were delivering these baskets just because of where they grew up, because of the neighborhood that they lived in. Our church was in a, in a crypt neighborhood. And a lot of the areas that we were dropping stuff off, they were kind of blood areas. And so, so they were like, Pastor, we'd like to go, but, but they'll recognize us because Belize City's kind of small. You know, it's too dangerous. And I would always remind them of this. I would always say, listen, you are immortal until the will of God is fulfilled in your life. Nothing can touch you. Nothing, when you're walking with God, nothing can touch you. Nothing can harm you except that which God allows. After church on Sunday last week, I went out to lunch with Tyler. Remember, Tyler was um, talking about the Ukraine. And he didn't really get into a lot of the details, but he was telling me about they were out in this village, kind of, well, not kind of, exactly, on the front lines. <clears throat> and the, um, they're talking to these Ukrainian troops, and they told him, I want you to go over and wait at this gas station. We're dealing with something. So they go park their vans, and all of a sudden, he says, on either side of them, these, these Ukrainians start shelling the Russians with these artillery pieces. And so the Russians, they start firing back. And he says, it starts out 100 yards on either side of him. These shells are landing and they're like moving in, kind of triangulating on his position. And he was just talking about, you know, they finally, they had to, you know, they had to get out of there because the next few rounds were going to land on them. But we were just talking about kind of, kind of about the crazy stuff, the crazy situations <laughs> that we've been in, 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 in the different ministries that the Lord has called us to and how, how, the Lord always meets us where we are and he gives us the grace to accomplish the missions that he calls us to. I look back on some of the things that the Lord led me to do and I'm like, what were you thinking? You know, but at the time, the Lord gave me the grace and the ability 
to fulfill the, the mission that he had given me. And I, and I think that, well, I don't think I know that for me, and the Lord gives us the grace to, 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 to accomplish what he calls us to do or to die with our boots on, so to speak, attempting to, to fulfill that calling. And I'm reminded of what Paul says. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? If you're about the business of God and you die, okay. Well, what happens? You wake up in heaven. It doesn't seem like that bad of a thing, right? Verse 14. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there's an ephod, household gods, a carved image and a metal image? Therefore now, consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. So the spies, they say, hey, you know what we saw last time we were here? There's a Levite here living at this house. And he's got this ephod, these priestly garments. And he's got these little idols in there. Now, something interesting that I, that I learned this week. Remember last week, we talked about how a lot of times it appears that when the Israelites would make these idols, they weren't necessarily trying to make idols to, to Chemosh and to, to Baal and Asherah and Molech. They were incorrectly making these idols to honor God. Well, some scholars believe that, that some of these idols, and specifically maybe this one, they were, they were little replicas of the Ark of the Covenant. And so it kind of fits the scenario, right? They're trying to replicate the tabernacle. They, they have these little make-believe priests wearing their little priestly Halloween costumes, these little false gods, and they have an idol of this, a little representation of the Ark of the Covenant, which would be what was in the actual tabernacle there in Shiloh. And so the spies say, listen, talking to their leaders, we're not trying to tell you what to do. We're not suggesting that you go in and, and steal all those things and, and kidnap the priests. But we're not saying not to either. Just in case you want to, here's a detailed map, right? And so they go and talk to Micah and the priests. And it says, they inquire about his welfare. But, but note what it says in the next verse. While the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. That's a fairly hostile inquiry, isn't it? Fairly intimidating. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these men went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? So you see the picture here. The five priests, they go inside the yard under the instruction of their leaders and, and they loot the place. 
They take the carved image. They take the household gods. And all the time, the priest is watching this, probably growing more and more concerned for his livelihood, wondering if he has to go pack his backpack and go sojourning again, like it says. Right? Go find an underpass to sleep under. And um, so he says, what are you guys doing? Why are you taking all the stuff from the shrine? He says, I'm going to be out of a job. I have a, I have a great gig here. I don't want to lose it. And they said to him, verse 19, keep quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? So they say to him, listen, friend, if you know what's good for you, you'll shut up. You'll put your hand over your mouth and don't say a word. It's almost like they had kids, huh? You ever say that to your kids? Just, right? That's what they're telling them. Just zip it. In fact, they say, why don't you come with us too? You can be our priest. For what's better? Is it better for you to be the priest to this family or a priest over this whole tribe? Now remember, not long ago, this guy was homeless. So he gets a job with room and board included. And now he's being offered this new position with power and authority and probably a pretty healthy income. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod. So now look what's happening. The spies don't even have to steal the stuff. He is doing it. It says, he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. The priest's heart was glad. He was happy to betray Micah and to go with these fellows from Dan. What do we learn here about the character and the calling and the commitment of this Levite? I can't help but be reminded of John chapter 10 here. Remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in John chapter 10 and verse 11. And he tells them this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus here, he's using a pretty common illustration in that culture. He says, look, there's these flocks of sheep and they're out in the fields and they have these shepherds who, who look out for the sheep and watch over them. And the shepherds, they love the sheep. And the sheep would love the shepherds. I, I've, I've read about how, you know, all the sheep are put in this one big sheepfold in the evening time. And each morning, the shepherds would come and they would, and they would sing this song. 
And as they sung the song, the sheep would recognize the voice of the shepherd and they would walk out and they would follow the shepherd out into the fields. And so there's this beautiful, loving relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. But occasionally, the shepherd's got to go to the doctor. The shepherd needs a little PTO. He needs a little vacate to club med. Right? So he would hire someone to watch the sheep. Now, when this temp worker would come and watch the sheep, if a lion or a wolf was going to attack, what happens? The temp worker, he doesn't have any vested interest. What does he do? He's gone. He runs away. He was only there for a paycheck. He's not going to lay down his life here. There's no, there's no connection to the sheep. There's no love for the sheep. It's just a job. Whereas the shepherd, he loves the sheep. And he would lay down his life to protect them. And so Jesus is using this as an example to talk about spiritual leaders about how spiritual leaders are like shepherds. And, and Jesus here in this context, he's talking about how he is the good shepherd, how he is the good pastor. That's the same word, by the way. And in other places, it's used to refer to spiritual leaders, right? How some are like shepherds who love and, and care for the sheep. And some spiritual leaders, frankly, they're, they're in ministry, for the income stream. It's a, it's a career, not a calling from God. And that's what we see here in this Levite. He wasn't a shepherd. He was a, he was a hired hand. He's a hireling. He had no calling from God. And because he had no calling from God, he had no, no loyalty to those that he, I'm using the air quotes here, ministered to. Right? He was in it for the money. He was in it for, for the position. Right? And this topic of shepherds and hirelings, it kind of brings up an interesting topic concerning church leadership models. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to kind of briefly touch on this. There are a few different types of church government. There are congregational churches, there are elder-led churches, there are bishop-led churches, there's what's referred to as the Moses model of leadership. And I just want to kind of briefly touch on this for a second as it pertains to us. I think that congregational churches, in my opinion, aren't really, I'm not saying they're bad or wrong, but I don't see the precedent for that in Scripture. And I kind of think of it as, and this just popped into my head this morning. This is, the, um, this is the golden calf model of leadership, right? Basically, whatever the people want to do, they vote on it. And that's what happens in the church. Elder-led churches, as it sounds like, they're led by the elders. And the elders hire and fire pastors at, at kind of at their will. And um, it's the elders that lead the church. Bishop-led churches are, are sort of like the hierarchy of where they have bishops and they have, they have 
archbishops, and they have dioceses. It's more like, like the Catholic church or, or some of these other kinds of churches. And then there's pastor-led churches. And sometimes it's referred to as the Moses model of leadership. And, and, this, and this model, one man is kind of the point person. He's in charge of the church. He's accountable to God. And he has a group of elders whom he relies on to, to help guide him as he leads the church. Help to guide and make important spiritual decisions, important financial decisions, etc. And I think that there's a biblical argument for all three of the last models, not the congregational model. But I think that there are biblical arguments to be made for all three models. And um, I also think that there are weaknesses and strengths to all three models. You know, our model of leadership is what's referred to as the Moses model. And um, the weakness is if you get somebody in church leadership who is power hungry and who has a very strong personality, there is potential for abuse. There's potential for the pastor just to gather yes men who will just kind of rubber stamp whatever the pastor wants to do. But there are pluses to that model as well, right? If the pastor, if he has his job at the good pleasure of the congregation who can vote him out, or if the pastor serves at the good pleasure of the elder board who can easily fire him and hire somebody else, the pastor has to be very careful not to offend the church body. The pastor has to be very careful not to oppose the elders. Because if he's a hireling, and I just made this term up, he can pretty easily become a fireling, right? You get fired pretty easy. And here's why this is an issue. My job is to offend you, right? My job is to point out issues. My job is to make you uncomfortable sometimes. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So Paul tells Timothy that people naturally have a tendency to gather together teachers who are going to tell them what they want to hear. And Paul warns Timothy not to do that. He says, you need to preach you need to exhort. You need to do the work of an evangelist. You need to fulfill your ministry. 
And very often, the job of a pastor is to tell people things that they don't want to hear. Very often, the job of a pastor is to offend people. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that my job is to be an offensive jerk. Wow, you look really fat in those pants. Did you pay for that haircut? You are one pathetic loser. No offense. Right? My job is to say things sometimes that offend people's consciences, to offend their flesh, to offend their self-righteousness, to offend their sense of comfort and ease, to tell people things that they don't want to hear sometimes. And a hireling can't do that if he's afraid to step on toes. And that's why I think that our system of church government, and when I say our, I mean Calvary chapels in general, because all Calvaries pretty much adhere to this, to this model of church government. I'm not saying that it's the only way, but I view it as preferable. And there are inherent risks, as I said. Pastors need good elders who aren't just yes men. I don't know if you guys know our elders. Joseph and Gary is not here and Mark. And um, they're strong, godly men who are most definitely not yes men. Um, and and that's, what, that's what a healthy, functioning church leadership needs to look like. Men from various backgrounds with various opinions who can come together and, and pray together and, and, and kind of hash out what the Lord's will is. And I think that this model that we adhere to, it allows the pastor to hear from God and to speak to the best of my ability on behalf of God while interpreting the scriptures. And I have these strong godly men who occasionally have to say, what are you doing? Are you, are you an idiot? You know, and, and help kind of guide me and direct me as I, as I seek to lead the church. And... That's not what we see here in Judges 18 with this Levite. He didn't, he was in it for the money. He was a hireling. He didn't care. He didn't care about the people, the position. He was just in it for what he could get. Verse 21. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priests and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? So you see the scene here. The people, they've got a, they've got a big group of people, right? There's not a, it's not a fast-moving group. They have kids, they have livestock, they're in front of the group so they don't get left behind, and they're kind of moving forward towards Laish. And Micah, he gathers a posse up from all of his neighbors, and they mount up, 
And they, and they quickly catch up to the people of Dan and they start yelling at them. And as they get close, the people of Dan look at, at Micah and his posse there as regulators and they say, what's the matter with you guys? Are you stupid or something? Look at us. We've got this army. You've got this little group of guys. What do you think you're going to do? And Micah says, you take my gods that I made and the priests and go away. What have I left? How then can you ask me, what is the matter with you? He says, well, what do you mean? Why do you think I'm upset? You took my gods, you took my priests and you left. And I've said this before, but let me say it again, just in case you forgot. If someone can steal your God, you're serving the wrong God. If someone can sneak into your yard and kidnap your God, you need to find yourself a new one. Now, false gods, imaginary gods, little idols, they're just as good as the real God, just as good as the living God, until you need the living God. And then you find out how worthless and powerless they really are. Then you realize just how short these false religions fall. And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life and the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way and Micah saw that they were too strong for him. He turned and went back to his home. So they turned to Micah and say, listen, son, you had better not use that tone of voice with us. Right? There are some bad dudes here and they're gonna take your life if you keep using that disrespectful tone. And Micah realizes that there's nothing that he can do. So he hangs his head in defeat and he walks home, godless, priestless, ephodless. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him. And they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. So the people of Dan here, they make off with Micah's stuff with the priests and they head to Laish. They strike down the people, they burn the city. And then they, after the battle, rebuild the city and, and, and take up residence. And they name the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And the people of Dan set up carved images for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So we see the people, they... They strike the land, they start this new city, 
And the city, it ends up becoming the most prominent city in northern Israel. There is an expression, sometimes you might read it in scriptures. It says, from Dan to Beersheba. You ever seen that? And what that basically means is, is countrywide, right? Dan was in the northernmost part of the country, and Beersheba was in the southernmost part of the country. So they're saying, when, they, when you see that expression, it means, it means everywhere. But look what they do. They set up the city, it becomes a prominent city, and they set up this idolatrous false religion, this false religious system. And it seems like it was a system that was specifically set up to rival the tabernacle and the true priesthood there in Shiloh. And as scripture unfolds, we find that this will eventually lead to the fall of the northern kingdom. They have this constant fall back into idolatry. And as we close out this morning, this kind of depressing text, what can we take with us? A couple of things. First, don't do the easy thing just because it's the easy thing. Dan was fearful. Dan was lazy. And because of that, they ended up missing out on what the Lord had for them. They missed out on the blessings that God wanted to give them in the promised land. And as you may know, in scripture, the promised land is symbolic of victorious Christian living, right? The promised land is symbolic of the Christian life. You know, sometimes in, you know, in old hymns and songs, people will equate the promised land to heaven, but that's not really a scriptural comparison. The promised land is much more like a picture of, of Christian living. And in your Christian life, if you always choose the path of least resistance, if you always take the easy path, if you're always doing what you want to do rather than how the Lord directs you, if you choose to walk in the flesh rather than in the spirit, you will never experience God's full blessing on your life. Now, let me make this very clear. Our salvation is not based on our performance. We are not saved by being good. We don't maintain our salvation by good works. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that very often our blessings from God are tied to our walking in obedience with him. Think about it like this. If my son misbehaves, if my son becomes a prodigal son, he doesn't stop being my son, right? But if my son is rude and disobedient, I'm not going to take him out and buy him ice cream and get him a new Xbox game. 
right? I'm not going to reward him for that poor behavior. And that's sort of how it works with the Lord's blessings. If you're a child of God, you're a child of God. You're secure in that position. But he's not going to reward you for disobedience. The second thing that we see is that God had an allotment for his people in the promised land. And when his people try to create their own promised land, things go sideways really fast. We need to be careful as we walk in faith that we're not trying to create our own version of God's will for our lives. That we're not trying to create our own idealized version of the Christian life, our own little personal promised land. Because it doesn't work. And in the end, God's plan is always better. And very often, it's a tougher route, but it's a much better destination. Lastly, we need to walk in faith and not in fear. We need to walk in faith and believe that the Lord has his hand on us and that he's able to sustain us and not let ourselves be controlled by the fear of man. 